Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 442nd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is living the good life while selling from her small farm. We're talking with Emily Heller about growing food for locals and small restaurants. Tempe, Arizona grower, Emily is a student of Mother Nature. Since moving to Arizona in 1998, she's been growing food and studying the low desert seasons as a backyard gardener. A former journalist, she shifted gears in 2014 and became a master gardener, then completed beginning farmer programs in Maricopa County and Pinal County. She went on to sell her produce at farmer's markets through a local growers co-op, now she leases farmland in Queen Creek, has scaled up production, and has her own booth at Uptown Farmer's Market in Phoenix. The name of her farming adventure is Bene Vivendo. That translates from Latin to the good life. Welcome to the show today, Emily. Are you ready to rock? Let's go. Cool. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yes, and Greg, thank you so much for having me on your program. It, it means a lot. We've, you and I have known each other for quite a few years now and had this conversation, but in bits and pieces along the way over the years as what you're doing has developed, same for me, and so now we get to kind of bring it all together and tie it off in a beautiful ribbon. So thanks nice. for this wonderful opportunity. Oh, my gosh, absolutely. Um, I have a little bit of growing in my genetic background. There were always gardens, even in grandparents' places, and a bit of a you know produce packing history and flowers and big fields and things like that. But I, I never really felt that I was going to be the, the prodigy. I always just liked researching things and mm-hmm. telling people about interesting things, news, background, everything else. So I became a journalist because I was a curious person. And I, I liked telling people interesting uh, and, and giving them uh, good information that they could rely on. Mm-hmm. But the, that gardener-grower person was always in the background. And when our family moved out here in 1998, it was a very tiny little patch of dirt in the back. It was a little bitty raised bed. And I just 
started experimenting with things and it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And I really got to learn a lot about about developing quality soil. And so it was a very, really tiny little patch. But, you know, I, I, start, I got the calendar and I started playing around with things and it was a learning experience for me. Uh, one of the things that has kind of defined how I go about this is that the learning curve is a, a living, breathing thing for me and I'm not oh, at all yes. afraid of it. Yeah. And for many people, a gardening experience or growing experience is they see the learning curve as like a mountain of frustration. But for me, it's, it's just, it's a joyous thing. And, mm-hmm. and I'm not afraid when, you know, things blow up or things don't go according to expectations. Right. So I was still practicing journalism when we moved out here uh, as a freelancer. And um, just over the years, I just grew more and more stuff in that little patch and um, became more and more curious about how to, how to be better at that. In 2014, I became a, a certified master gardener, and wow, that was a, a huge experience for me, eye-opening and uh, horizon-opening in every, in every sense of, of, of that word. And the U of A Extension at that time had a whole bunch of classes, programs that uh, people who were interested in growing could take, and that was really where the beginning farmer in me sort of woke up that day. And so after I got my master gardener uh, certification, I just kept taking classes, more and more classes. And the more I learned, the more I wanted to know. So I, I, I discovered a program out in Pinal County that was offered in Florence. And I took that sequence as well. These are not just standalone classes. They usually come in a sequence right? and they encompass all kinds of things like, yes, soil and and learning about soil fertility and water and food proper food handling as well as kind of the economic side of things and and the marketing side of things and so I just kept taking these programs because I found them to be just infinitely interesting and inspiring and they were relatively new there had been I think a cohort or two that had come before me that were out there then trying to grow for market But um, one of the things that just sort of kind of lit the fuse, if you will, that was just, I don't know, just felt like it was such a great opportunity for me is I met Chip Satterland from the Community Exchange Organization. Mm -hmm. And uh, Chip is someone we both know well, and he has created this co-op. It's a very simple system where people who have produce can bring it to various farmers markets where Community Exchange has a table. And there's not very formulaic or formal. You just bring your stuff, you sign a small paper, and the co-op collects the money and then sends you 80% of the proceeds of of, uh, your produce. And if you want to stand there and sell your, your produce and meet people, you can, or you can just drop it off and then come back and pick up whatever doesn't sell. Mm-hmm. But to me, this was almost like a kind of a bit of an explosion inside my head because I couldn't wait to meet people. <laughs> I couldn't wait to have the conversation with people in the marketplace about the importance of local food because it, it was just everything. Uh, at that time, you had created your food hub organization, and there was a huge community-wide conversation that that you had started about uh-huh. local food. How do we get more local food in the hands of people, in the hands of people who are going to eat this food? And I got to be part of that because I had received this education and training through the Beginning Farmer programs, community exchange, was an easy way to bring my produce 
And then it facilitated my ability to have conversations with the buying public about here's my, here's the food that I grew and you can talk to me. I grew it and we can talk about what's in season and we can talk about how I grew it. What are my growing methods? Just because it, it was just seems like everything kind of fell into place for me to be able to participate in the local food movement. And there, there were, there were lots and lots of people along the way that played a part in that, uh-huh. but it just felt like it was, it's not linear. It's curvilinear how I ended up here. But there, there were lots of people who encouraged me uh, along the way. And I, I, I think the theme would be that I just I, I looked for opportunities, grabbed them when they presented themselves, and then I went out and created my own opportunities that I saw that I thought would help me figure out what is my role in, in this marketplace. And the thing that I keep coming back to is that Phoenix is, uh, or this whole market area, you can be a tiny, tiny producer. And of course, that's what I am. Just compared to the large producers, I produce very little. And yet, here I am playing a role, even as the smallest uh, grower that, that you can imagine with just the smallest patch. So I went from about 300 just in the last couple of years I had about 300 square feet under cultivation in our where we live now, and we've moved from a different place when from where I was growing when I first started this. So, I uh, where we live now, I have about 300 square feet under cultivation, maybe a little bit more because I've got flowers and other herbs right. and other things that are not factored into that. But what I'm doing now is a factor of 10. It's over 3,000 square feet. Nice. Uh, 10 rows of 120 feet, even by those terms, it's a lot of land for me. But if you compare it against the super large farmers, it's a fraction. It's just right. really, really tiny. And yet, there I am offering my produce and participating. And it's okay that I don't need it. I don't bring my produce in a gigantic truck. Yeah. You don't have to be a big huge grower and think, oh, I have to be big with multiple acres in order to participate. So really, I think that's what my story really represents is that you don't have to think, I need a tractor, I need a truck, I need huge quantities of land. None of those are necessary. You can be part of the food, local food movement mm-hmm. and and how, how satisfying that is as a grower and to be able to talk to people about Here's this food. It's beautiful. It's nutritious. I hope you enjoy it. I enjoyed growing it for you. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I have in my past was while I was back in school, I went back to school late in life. Uh, I went back as a 39 year old to college. And that was in, wow. ni- that was in 1999. And in 2000 through about 2004, I just farmed my front and backyard here, probably had about I don't know, 1,500 square feet of, of garden beds that I farmed. And I would mm-hmm. get up early on the on market day, which were these are, was either a Wednesday or a Saturday. I got up super early and I harvested whatever there was to harvest in my yard. And I took it to the farmer's market. At that point, it was either town and country farmer's market or Roadrunner Park farmer's market. I did both of those. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'd walk away with a few hundred dollars in my pocket and – Anything that I had left over, I would take to a local restaurant at the end of the day. And I, I just, love it. yeah, I just left it with Susan at the Calico Cow and she would feed me. <laughs> so <laughs> I love it. And, and it was really just that simple. And one of the things that, one of the reasons that I started this podcast 
was to share with people actually how simple this is. And you've done a really good job of articulating that. Can you say a little bit more about that? Oh, absolutely. So, yes, I took full advantage of educational opportunities through the U of A extension, Mm -hmm. but you don't really have to do that. You know, there, you can uh, teach yourself. There's a lot of information. Uh, uh, there are, there are books or other, other references. There are gardening programs that are out there that you can learn best practices. Mm -hmm. And yes, growing is always, the variables are always different. Every season, even if you grow the same crops in the same location, you have weather, you have moisture, you have pathogens, you have different bugs that come and go. And so what we're managing every season is quite different. But our best practices, which I call parameters for success when I'm teaching my gardening classes, the, these best practices never change. Right. And that is really at compost to feed the soil or some mm-hmm. form of orga- of organic matter and watering properly to not build up excess salts in the soil. And so, you know, you have organic matter for living biologically active and healthy soil, watering correctly and planting whatever crops you want to grow at the right time mm-hmm. and, you know, providing whatever protective measure. So all those best practices guess what? Here's a secret. They're really not that hard. Practicing them and knowing when to deploy what, that's where the challenge comes in. And because this is not a perfect endeavor, as as you and I both know, if if, uh, other people are thinking like, oh, I like everything to be absolutely picture perfect, like a photograph, and everything must be perfection, and there are no flaws of any kind, and it looks like it was a painting. Well, Someone who finds joy in that might not find the utmost joy in growing food because nothing is perfect. And the produce that grocery stores often bring has been treated multiple times with multiple chemicals Mm -hmm. to give that appearance of perfection. But homegrown food and food grown without all those chemicals isn't always perfect. perfect. (laughs) There you go. Rarely is. Right. And so, you know, I think for, for other people who are looking to uh, do some uh, growing and maybe even bringing their beautiful produce to market, it is, uh, you don't have to get the U of A extension behind you. There are tremendous resources there, and I would encourage people to avail themselves of that. But you can teach yourself. And if if you follow these best practices of doing, making your decisions, thinking about all those organisms in the soil and really thinking about the soil as the methodology for farming success. If your soil's not healthy, your crop's not going to be healthy. We're going to talk about that here in a minute, though. So I don't don't want to get past something you said that I think is really important. And that is, you've mentioned best practices a couple of times. And one of the things that I like to share with people is there is this list of best practices and it's kind of like this universal list. And what you have to do is you have to take those best practices and refine them so that you, they're your best practices, right? Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I don't, for people who grow using conventional fertilizers, you know, I, I don't heap scorn on those folks. You know, there are lots of ways to grow food. There's lots of ways to garden. So, uh, when we think about how we're going from either a tiny little seed or a, a little start plant, starter plant, going from that to finished yield, mm-hmm. the, eating that tomato, eating that eggplant, and making sauce with that, that basil, having that pumpkin, whatever you're growing, the way that the plant goes from that origination point to the final point is with nutrients. And by growing organically, 
feeding the soil with compost, with organic matter, it is the way that plants receive their nutrients. And this decomposition process that involves so many different organisms, that's what releases nutrients, uh, major nutrients to plants. And so providing organic matter, even if you use more conventional uh, methods of fertilization, I don't think you can garden here without a compost or organic matter. Lots now, there's an entire different universe of people who do hydroponics and aquaponics, and we're not talking about those lovely people who do amazing work, and it's a, an art form, and it's highly technical, and we tip our hats to them and blow them kisses all the time. We're not, we're talking about growing food in soil, not with water. So if you are a dirt farmer, then, and if soil is your thing, then it is large quantities of compost that need to be applied to your soil every time you plant. Even this means multiple times a year. I would say the number one thing of best practices is work toward the goal of healthy soil by providing lots of organic matter, and that will help your plants receive the nutrients that they need from all those microorganisms doing their thing deep down in the soil. I mentioned also a proper watering, and I really think that's important and going to become even more important as mm-hmm. we deal with the reality of scarcity. And if we water incorrectly, too much, too frequent, too little, too shallow, you know, none of those things are really going to help your plant. So putting water, not on the plant, but on the soil, soil. where where the roots are. And so we shouldn't care so much about what does the top of the soil look like? We should probe the soil, even if you have just one pot growing in your backyard, probe the soil so you know what's happening, how much moisture there is surrounding the roots of the plant. Yes. So a lot of people assume like the top is dry, that plant needs water. I would say possibly, but maybe not. Get yourself a moisture meter. Yes, or probe with a skewer or a, or a barbecue skewer or something like that. And if you practice it enough, you'll get sensitivity. Mm -hmm. So you will notice, you'll be able to sense the different resistance of soil that's dry versus soil that that holds moisture. Oh, yes. By the way, one of the things that compost does that's absolutely magical is that it helps our soil be balanced between retaining the proper amount of moisture and draining excess moisture. So that's another great thing that helps with porosity and this moisture retention and exclusion, which is so important. That helps us have the right, it helps us avoid the overwatering that I think really many, many growers kind of struggle with. So, you know, if I think if you grow in the season, the, the right crop in the right season, and you use good amount of compost and you water correctly, that is going to help you improve your success from just moderately successful to like, wow, call the neighbors. We need to share this yield. <laughs> zucchini. <because laughs> You'll have a zucchini experience with maybe some of your other crops as well because the plant is getting the nutrients. It's getting water where the roots can absorb it. And um, it's growing at a time of year when the plant genetically is programmed to do what you want it to do. So give it the conditions. Give it the right day length, hours of sunlight. Give it the right temperature. And so I'm really still surprised about people who come to me at market and ask for various things that are so way out of season. People ask me for fresh 
fresh basil in January. And I, I had this sad look like, oh, I wish I could have that for you in January. But and then I go through my little five minute story about the seasons and the low mm-hmm. desert. You know, every time that I engage a conversation with someone at market, that it, it's an opportunity to bring them into the fold of people who not only uh, are interested in local food, but who then can take it one step farther, which is know what the seasons are, know right. when to expect the various commodities and when they're, when they're fresh. And when, when someone asks me for fresh local basil in January, that's a very important teaching moment. I don't brush them off or scoff or make a face. I use that as an opportunity to talk about the seasons and when things come and go. And uh, the planting calendar I have made into a gigantic poster. It's probably, oh, nice. I don't know, th- three or four, three by four feet. <laughs> oh my gosh, really? So, <laughs> it's huge. And and I often will have the um, a smaller version of that with whatever month it is kind of colored in with a colored pencil. So people, and I do bring plants to market. So when people are interested and, and, and looking at the plants, they can kind of see what the context is of the other things that are appropriate to plant during that season. Right. So I, I just feel like it's a, there are opportunities to support people's interest in not only the produce, but the plants, but also if, if they're interested in growing, then we can kind of give them a little bit of, of a high five verbally, you know, a little attaboy, oh, yeah. like good, good for you. And for people who are still trying to figure out what's fresh when, then, then we can kind of bring them into the fold too. I mean, gardening, people feel very, oftentimes will feel very judged. Maybe it's a self-critical thing. I'm not sure, but people sometimes will come to me sort of sheepishly and tell me about all the, all the things that they've killed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would tell them like, oh, honey, I've killed way more things than you. Don't worry about that. <laughs> That's what I tell people. I say, I promise I've killed much more than you ever have or probably ever will. Absolutely. Not on purpose, but that's the learning process. It is. And that kind of comes back to like the learning curve is a glorious thing and not to be afraid of it. (laughs) Right, exactly. And and come on over on the learning curve. Come on over. The weather's fine here. So uh, You've mentioned a couple of times the planting calendar. Are you speaking to the planting calendar that I put out? I think your calendar is probably, I, I, ha- I have your calendar uh, as well as the University of Arizona's uh, uh-huh. planting calendar. There are some really strong similarities uh, mm-hmm. in those two things. You know, basically we've got the quote uh, unquote cool season, which begins in September, which is really not very cool yet, right. then, but that's the time frame for a lot of leafy Things, uh, lettucey things, the broccoli family, the kale, and beet and uh, root vegetables root like beets ve- yep. and carrots and things like that. Yeah. And then we have our quote unquote warm season, which arrives usually rather abruptly. Um, the transition period is around February, February and that's exactly. the time that we boy, we're planting the fruity things like tomatoes and cucumbers, uh, squashes, Squash. and things like that. Yeah. And then there are what I call the shoulder seasons that are where we have a kind of some transition where Mother Nature gives us a little bit of a preview of what the season is to come. Like in when it's so hot still in September, you think, well, the planting calendar says that I can plant my bok choy now. But if we're still having 110 plus in September, Good luck gee, with that. Um, yeah. let's wait. <laughs> Yeah. Or the mustards that really, and arugula and things like that, that really do hate the hot weather. And so, yeah, the calendar says I can plant, but that's where the calendars are these lovely frameworks, they're guidelines, but we really right. do have to use common sense and know 
what the, you know, we have to read the seed packet, read the, read the plant information to know that like if something is heat tolerant, like uh, uh, cilantro is a cool season herb, but it's exquisitely phobic of hot weather. Oh, and yes. so we, we want to plant our cool season herb garden and we want to get it going, say in October, that's fine. But if it's still super, super hot in October and you put your little cilantro plant in there, it may send up a help me flag, uh, which is a, a flower, flower stalk, exactly. which is the plant's way of saying, I don't like it here and I think I'm done. I'm not going to try. And so we have to, we have to know the calendar. Yes. And we have to also with that comes the framework of common sense where if uh, we have things that are very sensitive to some kind of condition, excessive heat, excessive Something. cold, yeah. then then we need to wait. We need to pause and wait until the conditions are more favorable. The reason I asked you about the planting calendars is because I really want to touch on that. It's it, it's a guideline. So what you need to do is you need to find a planting calendar for your area. And often cooperative, the cooperative extension will have a planting calendar for your area. I happen to put one together for the low desert at plantingcalendar.org. But I think that's one of the most important things to do uh, next to building healthy soil. And that's get a planting calendar so you know what to plant when, right? Absolutely. I mean, everything needs healthy soil that, with lots of compost. There are some exceptions. We're talking food plants, though. These are not low-nutrient crops. Right. So if, if you want to, you know, get, figure out your source of compost and get the planting calendar at the same time, that's fine. But the planting calendar it is a straightforward document. But it almost always requires some study. And so you look at when, what to plant when, but then you have to figure out what do I want to grow? What do I like to eat? Yep. Do I, or, or, and why am I growing? Is it for my family? Am I doing a community garden for maybe a, a school or a scout project? Or am I growing carrots for the, the church youth group? Or I mean, wh- whatever, what, who are you growing for? And then, yeah. and so there's just sort of a process of uh, a series of questions. To ask yourself, yeah, you need your organic matter, you have to have your planting calendar, but then that requires a little bit of further study and, again, making it yours. Like, okay, I'm going to grow these four things. Mm -hmm. How much room do I have to grow? Do I have one raised bed? Do I have one pot? How many plants can I fit in that area? Many people cram way too many many things in. in. That's a problem. That's a problem with carrots. I had a volunteer here at the Urban Farm this past year, and this person planted out way, way, way too many carrot seeds. In fact, I gave them like, I gave them like four ounces of seeds and they put them in three rows. The lesson we learned, and this is a, you know, a good lesson for me. The lesson I learned is that, yeah, we got a lot of great carrot tops, but no carrots down (laughs) below because there's, you know, there's just not enough space for them. So. Yeah. And you won't get the proper, it just won't size up correctly. I mean, you get little, really little micro carrots, like micro greens. Exactly. That was all on me because I, you know, I didn't give that person enough instructions on, you know, on what to do with it. So, well, you know, uh, seed packages and plants almost always will have the planting instructions that will tell you how much room to give. Mm -hmm. And yes, we can plant intensively where we're maybe planting two things that are sort of adjacent to each other, two different crops. Well, we would do that when one is going to yield right away and then the other one takes maybe months longer. And so it's not going to take up very much room. And so you get a little bit of that first crop and then the second crop and they can grow, they can share sort of close quarters. But if you're, if you're trying to grow 
a bunch of stuff mm-hmm. in a small space, then crowding is a really good way of not getting your yield. Exactly. <laughs> and so crowding would be something to avoid if you can, for sure. There you go. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you learned from it. Oh, so many failures. Um, <laughs> That's how we learn, right? And, and you, oh, of course, it doesn't it doesn't discourage me or or frighten me or 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 make me kind of um, uh, it doesn't really slow me down because I think that the process of growing food, whether for just yourself or your family or for market, has failure inherent in the process. And yes, we do follow our best practices and we give it our very best shot, but uh, sometimes Mother Nature has some other ideas. She might have uh, a new pest or a a proliferation of a a well-known expected pest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Sometimes you do everything correctly. You plant in season, you care for the soil, you plant with the right spacing, you do the right protective measures, maybe some row covering to make a barrier between your crop and all those chewing insects out there, and yet you still have a pest pressure and maybe even crop loss. So, um, you know, I think that for every for everything I've grown, I'm always surprised about how many bugs are out there, even if you take protective measures. Right. And so I, this is how I overcome it. I, I take a lot of deep breaths and I think to myself, oh, well, quite a bit. And I try to celebrate when the pests, I've been able to keep them at bay and not worry or fret too much when I have a pest pressure that's gotten the best of things. So I think patience is how I overcome that. And let yeah. me give you an example. So in the fall, at uh, my uh, the place where I'm, I'm farming now at uh, my uh, friend's farm in Queen Creek, I've uh, planted a whole bunch of different things, but I planted a good amount of beets. I love beets. I think they're beautiful. I think they're incredibly nutritious. And of course, they're very delicious. Oh, yes. So, and I've, I grow from seed, which requires a little bit of extra work because a beet seed is actually a fruit with multiple seeds in it. And so you do have to go in and thin out the plants and sort of kind of, I didn't want to have like that experience you talked about with the carrots with too much crowding because you with beets and other root vegetables, you really do need to have a proper size. So they came up and I thinned them out and things were coming along pretty well. And in, at some point during the fall, some chewing insects arrived and I still don't know what they were, but the beets started to show some signs of pest pressure chewed leaves. But you know what? I didn't chop up the crop. I I let them be. I was patient and I kept an eye on things. And sure enough, the little plants kept growing. And sure enough, they grew to a mature size. And sure enough, I got a yield of beets. Oh, nice. So you know what? Okay. So many people say, ah, I have bugs. (laughs) <laughs> should I pull the plants out right. and start over? No. Or should I I just should I just oh what have, what have I done wrong? What am I doing wrong? And so this is how I uh, my outlook on this which is be patient. You can spray with a shot from your garden hose to knock down some chewing insects, things like aphids and maybe white flies that might be kind of uh, sucking some of the sap out of your plants. But mm-hmm. when you have when you have chewing insects, things like flea beetles, you squirt a little water and, of course, they all fly away to go hide somewhere and then come right back, come back the second you walk away. There's very little you can do. And so patience is how I overcome 
the difficulties of dealing with insects, uh, in, especially in the field. And But, you know, it's the same bugs out in the field that visit our backyard. Yep. And so, you know, we can do row cover. I think that helps a little bit. But if you're going to do row cover, then you have to apply it the, at the same time that you're planting. Because if you wait, then you have an opportunity to, to let, let the bugs be then. And then you're like, by doing row cover over that, it's like tucking them in at night, like, okay, sweet dreams, everyone, and keeping them there. And by keep having row cover not on, it allows beneficial insects to come and help you. Right. Um, maybe it's not really control, but maybe knock down the population yeah. of some of these uh, chewing insects. And so, Greg, I'd have to say that even though there's failure, some aspect, some component of failure in every every crop, every season, patience is how I deal with it. Nice. And um, to, it helps me just be less worried too because, you know, sometimes the pests do get the best of plants and that's when you say, oh, well, you remove the plant and you put in your compost and you recycle those nutrients. And then that's sometimes really just... That's is recycling yeah, the and nutrients. Then, yeah. Absolutely. And then sometimes just waiting it out. Seasons with the change of seasons comes with oftentimes the change of pests. So something, pests that might be really seeming like they're infiltrating every aspect of your garden, when the weather changes, they might go away mm-hmm. or uh, they might, you know, the ebb and flow of the seasons uh, means that we, we can just not worry too much about uh, the insects that might be out there. Um, sometimes they just sort of go away on their own. So what do you consider your biggest success? Oh, that's, that's a great thing to ask, being able to just hold a vegetable in my hand mm. and pass it into someone else's hands, someone who is a, a interested and a supporter of, of local food. So, and then however many times that happens uh, on a given Saturday at Uptown Farmer's Market, that that is uh, when I have succeeded. But there's an, another sort of a part B to that, which is I have customers that have found me since my community exchange days, and that's uh-huh. lovely. But I think the thing that I'm proudest of are people who are return customers who didn't know me from before, who just mm-hmm. discovered me recently. And so anyone who is interested in local food and is a supporter of a, uh, of a local grower, that's the epitome of, of success. And so it's the people who already are thinking along those lines and all those other people who we haven't met yet, who uh, we look forward to having a conversation with them to bring them in. One of the things, and you, you kind of referred to this a moment ago or alluded to it a moment ago, that's a better statement about it. And that is consistency of being there. And what yeah. I found when I was doing the farmer's markets, if I was there every week, I did better. Have you found that that's the case? Well, absolutely. And I, I really can't miss a week because then continuity is a big part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes even if the market would might relocate you a little bit and then your customers would often say, ah, I, I couldn't find you. I, I, I need to know where you are. So yes, absolutely continuity. And many people will ask me, are you here every week? Mm-hmm. And my answer to them is absolutely, yes. unless there's some uh, emergency that keeps me away. So yes, and I like putting my business card in people's hands and and uh, offering uh, the ability to connect with them. And um, I'm not posting my availability every week uh, online or on, on social media, but I think uh, eventually I might do that. But cotton, it, it can't, it's so important. I agree with you. So what drives you? Well, I'm a stubborn person, Greg. <laughs> nice. Um, I, 
I'm kind of determined. And I think it's just, it's that curiosity that just drives everything I do. I'm curious about, is there a different variety that's better, that's more heat tolerant, that's more disease resistant, uh, that's more delicious, that's more beautiful, that's more nutritious. I'm always feel like I'm always uh, researching and looking, uh, looking for new things. And so it's pretty, I'm pretty insatiable just with information. And I hark back to my days as a journalist where I'm always looking for information that's, that's relevant and to be able to convey to people who are reading my articles. This is really the same practice, Greg, where I'm out there experimenting with things, working on the soil, working on the varieties and bringing them to market. And you always are thinking then uh, ahead to the next season. What am I going to grow? I'm stubborn, I'm curious, and I'm determined. It's also really fun. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. You know, one of the best pieces for me, and I can get this for you too, and that's when you're interacting with people and they're, you know, giving me a high five from Australia for the podcast. Or, or oh, they, wow. Or they come and visit you on a Saturday and they give you a high five because of the vegetables they bought from you last week. That's, that's like the, the juice of it for me. How about you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And there are many, uh, and those high fives come in lots of different oh, yes. forms. Yes, it's someone who buys every week and, uh, or who comes up to you and smiles and says, what do you have for me this week? Mm-hmm. Or do you have any more of those, whatever, whatever they purchased before? Or, wow, that was the best I've ever had. And, and I, I, you know, people feel lucky to be able to have this opportunity to buy locally. And the fact that they come back with a smile, looking for more, we've done our job. We have really mm-hmm. done our job. And, and I want people to expect a smile and just, I mean, there's a lot of joy in this experience. Why not share it? You know, why not have shared uh, happy experiences and standing at a booth and uh, surrounded by locally grown, uh, beautiful produce? Uh, how can you not feel that joy? And so, you know, being joyously appreciative for the people who come visit me, whether they buy produce or not. You know, we have people who come by and just kind of grin and smile at everything. And th- th- those are people who are giving me lots of feedback, too. Yeah, I, I, we appreciate the people who buy from us, but the people who say, wow, and yeah. great job, and be- that's beautiful. And, you know, th- that's a reward in and of itself, I think. Yes, this is a commercial enterprise, but there's a, there's a lot of ways that the market gives gives you, you know, kind of boosts your feeling of like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm doing this for the right reasons. Right. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? There are so many books. My library is huge, but there is a book that helped me kind of turn the corner from backyard gardener to market gardener, to grower for market. And in fact, the book is called The Market Gardener. Mm-hmm. It is easy to get. Uh, the author is someone who is... Uh, hailed as kind of a hero for small farms, small farms that don't have lots of equipment and that don't need heavy equipment. The author is Jean-Martin Fortier. He is a Canadian guy and he has been, he's given uh, programs down here in the Phoenix area. And I have a, a benefit of doing a day-long seminar with him. It was a packed room, all uh, growers of all sizes, the big, the big ones and the small folks like me. And his message is you can grow for market. And here are my best practices. And it's, it's deeply inspirational book. 
and he's a deeply inspirational farmer. Mm-hmm. Nice. And the, one of the key, most important messages is you don't have to have a lot of land. You don't have to have a lot of expensive equipment. Mm-hmm. This is how you can do it. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? It's hard to distill that down, but I would say keep smiling. And even if you have a total, even if you have a total loss, in other words, you don't get the yield you want, there are lessons to be learned with that and keep trying. It, it is, it may feel like a slog and uphill battle, but if you look for the things that uh, give you encouragement, then that gives you kind of a little bit of fortitude to take that next step. Look, look for your firm footings where you can step through this journey. And yeah, it's, it, it doesn't always work the way you want. In fact, guess what? It rarely does. But keep trying, keep growing, and uh, there's a lot of joy that's waiting for you. Just uh, don't let all those quote-unquote failures discourage you too much to, to give up those practices. Just keep trying. Amen to that. And thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Emily. It has been my pleasure, and thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm kind of a goofy person, and so uh, am I. I appreciate. <laughs> that's why we enjoy each other so much. Yeah. And I, I really think that there is for a lot, all those discouraged people out there to, you know, to encourage them to try again or to keep trying. I think it's, it's a really great message. And thank you for the wonderful opportunity to share my story and uh, to get that message of, uh, of encouraged gardening out there. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Oh, okay. Well, um, I don't have a website. But I am on social media, especially Instagram. Mm. And I am on Facebook, but I just don't, I find that it's, it's not quite as uh, straightforward for, and not as easy for people to so contact me. So how do we me. find you? How do we find you on Instagram? So on Instagram, um, it's the name of my farming adventure. And I'll spell that. It's Bene, B-E-N-E dot Vivendo, V as in Victor, I-V-E-N-D-O. Bene Vivendo, and mm-hmm. uh, people are more than welcome to send me messages on Instagram at Bene Vivendo. Perfect. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Emily Heller. We are your urban farming resource. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and everywhere podcasts are found. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. 
Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.